I'm going to be, oh, before I begin to read, I was informed this morning that um, I have set the record with this message for having the most slides. <laughs> and Olivia suggested that I should get like a little lapel pin or a little sticker. And I think since she's the one who's going to be doing slides, she should probably get the lapel pin <laughs> or the little sticker. So thank you guys. Verses 10 through 12 of chapter 14. I've titled this one, Each of Us Will Give an Account of Himself to God. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. And every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. I'm about to pose a question to us this morning. And I first heard this question on the radio a few weeks ago, actually, from an older gentleman who uh, said this is a question that he often asks. And you may need to hear it twice. So here, here goes. Listen carefully. Because when I heard it, it hit me like a two-by-four to the throat. And if, it, if I had that reaction, how could I not pass on that wonderful experience to you all? How is your hate life this morning? You heard me. I'll repeat it, though. How is your hate life this morning? Is it alive and vigorous? Is it cultivated and guarded? It's a shocking question, right? The word hate will get our attention every time. It shocks our sensibilities. It grates like fingernails on a chalkboard, although I know that for many of you, that image doesn't carry any freight anymore. And there is an American Sign Language motion for the word hate, and it goes like this. You take your little finger, put it to your thumbs, and the cluck is just a bonus. We teach it to your children and to your grandchildren. <laughs> In our children's music time, we do that week by week. And I know what you may be thinking. What great hymn of the faith or what spiritual song would feature the word hate in it? Well, if you listened to the prelude this morning, that's your answer, right? For lo, our ancient foe dust seek to work us Woe, his craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is what? On earth is not his equal. So, if your children begin using that around the dinner table, making reference to something they perhaps would not wish to eat, all I can say is, you're welcome. <laughs> Let me explain to you why I asked that question to begin. Paul here is cutting right to the chase. He's pulling no punches. He does not ask if the Romans are inappropriately judging one another. He asks why. Then he equates this attitude with another hard word, despise. So this may apparently was characteristic of the, of the Roman church. Is it characteristic of us, of you and me? here. 
Is it who we are? And the answer, according to Scripture, is that in the absence of the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, the answer is a clear and unequivocal, yeah. It makes me uh, wonder if there might be a bit of truth in this statement that my brother has made to me, and I think I've even quoted it here before. In all seriousness, he said to me, one time, this is my brother Jim, hi Jim. Um, He said, when something bad or sad happens to me, half of my friends won't care, and the other half will be secretly glad. Surely that is not the case here, is it? Not here. So, So where does Paul go with this? Notice that he doesn't say simply, stop it. Don't be like that. Cut it out. No, he cuts the ground out from underneath a righteous indignation so that we may begin to see that we all stand ankle deep in our carefully cultivated self-righteousness as we await the truly and singularly righteous judgment of God. He quotes from Isaiah 45, 23 to hammer home the point that there is only one judge and to him we will all bow and we will all confess I'm going to read for you the broader passage from which that quote is taken in Isaiah 45, 22 through 25. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, a righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. But there's kind of an odd thing about this passage. It's bracketed on either end by the phrase, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And at the other end by the phrase, each of us will give an account of himself to God. So how about it? Are you looking forward to that day? Standing before the judgment seat? You know, I see Donnell shaking her head, yes. She can't wait for that day, right? But let's be honest here. Does it seem a little bit like a bait and switch? I, I, I thought our salvation was full and free, that we can approach the throne of the justice of God, pleading the blood of Jesus. And by virtue of that faith, that plea, that gift of grace, we will have been made clean. Names having been written in the Lamb's book of life. Accountability? How is that a part of the good news? My wife told me, when I mentioned this to her, she says, well, there's rewards, and Rewards are great and everything, but what I really want is I just want to avoid being embarrassed, right? Is this our Heavenly Father's last chance to sort of rub our collective noses in our sin before he unlocks the handcuffs? Well, surely, surely not. But consider these two passages. Now, if anyone builds, this is from 1 Corinthians 3, If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive 
a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Consider this verse from 2 Corinthians 5. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 2 Corinthians 5, 8-10. It's not my purpose today to unpack the full meaning and the full depth of this topic, but we will profit, I think, as we consider Romans 14, to think about this for a little bit. So let me offer a little story, and this, this may help us. I hope so. In my last semester in college, although we were on the quarter system, so it was the last quarter in college, I had lost interest, really, in my academic performance. It was, I was sort of mailing it in at that point. I was looking forward to getting married and to get on with making a living and looking forward to the next chapter in my life, and nobody was lining up to um, offer me a job or to put my skills to use in any sense, and so I was preoccupied with some other, with some other matters. But for that last quarter, I discovered that I had the opportunity to take an independent study course. Wow, this was great. No classes, no fellow students, little engagement with the professor, no tests, no homework. All it took is just one gigantic term paper at the end. It sounded like a winner to me, and by that point I had kind of figured out how to navigate the academic world, at least enough to know that I could probably do okay. Nevertheless, when I turned in my well-padded research paper, reflecting the entirety of my efforts for the course, I never got it back. I never heard a word about it. I did get the A in the course because it was on my report card, which at that time came in the mail a few weeks later. And though I thought that was all that mattered, I was strangely disappointed. Where was the engagement? Where was the evaluation? I realized that I had really appreciated the margin notes with a red pen that would say, that would say, hey, good insight. Or, mm, I follow your point, but your logic is really weak. I didn't get any of that. There was no engagement. There was, there was nothing. No challenges at any point. There was not even the, the, the standard remark that would say, too many dots in your ellipses. Immediately upon graduating, I got married, and very soon I had bigger fish to fry than to follow up on the matter. And after all, sometimes it's best just to let sleeping dogs lie. A couple years later, I got the paper back. It was when the professor was cleaning out his drawer. Maybe he had been fired or retired or something, but he was cleaning out his paperwork and he sent the thing back to me. And at that time, I had zero interest in it at all. I could not even really remember what I had done. But you get the point? The red notes in the margin are a mercy to us, right? It is a bigger mercy than we can possibly know, folks, that our lives actually count for something in the way they are lived here. That what we do here, what we think here, what we say, it all matters. That the grace of God extended to us in actual real forgiveness 
is not a forgiveness based on some sort of cultivated heavenly ignorance, but with full deep knowledge of every motive, of our darkest and most ugly thoughts, and also of every cup of cold water that we gave to one of God's children. And oh, that all of that might be exposed to the fresh light of the justice and the goodness and the mercy of Christ. To be washed clean and to rejoice along with the courts of heaven in the grace and commendation of our brothers and sisters with whom we once marched. And to hear our gracious and powerful heavenly father proclaim, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. And, and not necessarily to me, but to one of my fellow soldiers and saints with whom I have walked arm in arm through the greatest joys and the murkiest swamps of this world because I want to be there in the bleachers in the courts of heaven to hear those words expressed to my friend Clyde, to my friend Dea, to Gloria, to dear Mike and Leah, to my friend Camden and Reuben and Kevin and Carol and so many more. And I just violated one thing in my notes that I had written down, be careful. Because either I have to name every single person in this room or I have to offend by omission most of you. So let that be a lesson to you. <laughs> Next section. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on each other any longer. Verses 13 and 14. Therefore, let us not pass judgment upon one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. For I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Now, I know what you may be thinking. You're thinking, rats. Judging other Christians is the only thing I was ever really any good at. And after all, we shall judge the angels according to 1 Corinthians 6. And also 1 Corinthians 5 tells us that we do indeed judge and challenge and exhort and correct our brothers in the body of Christ in ways that we may never judge unbelievers, right? Well, clearly here, Paul is not talking about the need to exhort one another in matters of life and death and practice in the body of Christ. The clear context in this section is to warn against using our cultural idiosyncrasies as weapons to cause hurt and fracture within the body of Christ. You know, it's interesting to me, as Daryl mentioned a couple weeks ago, that Paul is, he's putting his cards face up on the table right in front of us here. He's holding nothing close to his vest. He's convinced that none of the disputable cultural matters are in and of themselves unclean. And we all would be quick, I think, to second the motion. In the abstract, we would affirm the principle. But there's at least two problems that crop up all the time. First, there is usually some logic or practical driver behind the roadblock we would place in the path of another, perhaps more culturally free brother or sister. Let me offer you a couple of examples. I do not consume alcohol. Yay for me. 
And if pressed on the reason, I will, if I'm being honest, acknowledge a keenly felt cultural discomfort with it. I can't help it. Um, it's how I was brought up in Christ. But then I will make sure to add that alcoholism has been a dark specter in the life of my family, and that danger there is lurking for me in a very real sense. Do you see what I did? What I just did was in an oh-so-pious way, I have imbued this admittedly secondary matter with a weight that goes way beyond cultural bias. And in fact, it is now virtually unassailable. And it has become a matter of first importance, right? Similarly, particular standards of dress, though to agree culturally driven, may be defended on the basis of association with the proper sobriety that should accompany our worship. So that's one problem. We can take a secondary matter and we can add enough freight to it so that it is elevated to a position of primary importance, in spite of the fact that we would acknowledge that it's a secondary matter. The second problem is this. Those of us who seem to be less encumbered by cultural prohibitions are nonetheless bound in ways that we may not recognize. You think you're free in Christ? How free do you think you are? My guess is that we, we may embrace a freedom when it comes to the consumption of alcohol. But we might be a little bit less egalitarian when it comes to something else, like, say, for example, the smoking of cigarettes. The truth is that we are all on a cultural continuum. And by the way, um, I hate to pick on Jeff. Actually, I, I like to pick on Jeff Shoup because he's a pretty good sport. But Jeff and I grew up in the Lutheran church, and I don't know if Jeff would agree with this or not, but one of the most vivid images in my mind is that between services in the Lutheran church, the men in the church, brothers in Christ, sincerely trusting in the Lord Jesus. You know what I'm going to say, right? They would gather on the front steps of the church between the services so they could all get one last smoke in before they would go into the sanctuary. And Pastor Eifrig and Pastor Reclaw would be right there with them. And as a 10-year-old boy, as I looked on that, I thought, one day so shall I. It was a, it was a, 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 a cultural constant, right? Number three, high stakes indeed, verses 15 and 16. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Though our sensibilities on many disputable matters may be grounded mainly in a difficult to defend or define cultural context, the impact of our cultural rigidity can be hard, cruel, and destructive. And Paul doesn't mince words here. In verse 16, he suggests that we have the capacity to what? To destroy our weaker brother for whom Christ has died. Wow. He's pulling out the big guns of the English language here in this section. He used the word judge, despise, and now destroy. Surely that's not our intent, right? 
There is such a hard reality at play here. What we know is this, that if we somehow convince a weaker brother that, for example, it's okay to eat a certain food or drink a certain beverage or wear certain clothing or participate in certain recreational activities on certain days at certain times, we might well succeed. By our words and example, we might well unlock the handcuffs, so to speak, and free them to a more full and liberated pattern of life. What could be wrong with that? Paul answers that question with bitter clarity. What's wrong with that is that the weaker brother may be persuaded to change a pattern of behavior without changing their mind and heart. It is possible, it just might be possible, that the conscience of a fellow believer is somehow less nimble than our own. They may be left in a wrestling match with their accusing conscience long after you, the stronger brother, has moved on to blissful indulgence. When that happens, your freedom has become a stumbling block, a thing that destroys. You will have justified your own freedom at the expense of the destruction of a soul. And folks, we would all agree, may that never be. In Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail, which in my view should be mandatory reading for every junior high or high school kid and certainly for every young man or young woman in this church, he refers to a quote from John Bunyan where he says, I will stay in jail till the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. I discovered this because I had a scribbled note in my Bible which said, the butchery of my conscience I will not tolerate. Well, most scribbled notes in my Bible were from something that Pastor Darrell has said somewhere along the way over the last almost 19 years. So I asked him about it. Do you recognize this quote? Where'd you get it from? Who said it? Did you make it up? What does it have to do with the passage? And he said, I don't think I ever said that. Um, so well, thank you, Pastor Darrell. You've been no help at all. Um, but So I, I Googled, looked it up, and I came, came upon the John Bunyan quote. But for the purposes of today's text, it might be better put, the butchery of the conscience of my brother or sister, I, we, will not tolerate. This section in Romans is a cautionary tale for the strong as well as the weak. Folks, we have the capacity, according to Scripture, to make a butchery of the conscience of our brothers and sisters. In that same letter, in words that unmistakably ring of Martin Luther King, he says this, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. That's kind of a virtuoso performance in the use of language, right? He's summing up part of the content of Romans 14. But let me ask you this. Do we believe this, brothers and sisters? According to scriptures, we've been set free, and we are about to see that in the mercy of God, we have been freed together, not by ourselves, to pursue and find the kingdom of God among us, marked especially and specifically and pointedly and amazingly by righteousness, peace, and joy. I'm going to read... I'm going to read um, through verse 21, starting at verse 17. I'm titling this part of it, 
the elusive pursuit of righteousness, peace, and joy. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So the, the, the three words, righteousness, peace, and joy, if they kind of ring a bell or seem as though they fit together, you go to Galatians 5, I believe, and you'll find them listed under the category of fruits of the Spirit. And the phrase, to thus serve Christ in that way is to be acceptable to God and approved by men. That's a pretty good end game for how we treat one another in the body of Christ, it seems to me. But how do we do it? I want to illustrate it with a story, a little vignette I want to read to you, but before I do, it's worth noting that often the disputable matters that divided the early church had to do with food, and more specifically, with the social and economic fractures that were present in the early church and persist to this day. Read Acts, read the book of James. You'll find um, uh, cultural conundrums having to do with the consumption of food together. So I can confidently state that the relevance of this passage for us is never going to wane as long as we eat food. Or more particularly, as long as we are in the business of eating food together. So in the vignette I'm going to read, which is from uh, the book To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. And I see a few of her going, oh yeah, I know that. I read that book, I know that. I'm going to set the scene first, but if you get confused in a detail, don't worry. It'll come together at the end. The scene is a school day lunch in the, at the kitchen table of the father Atticus, his two children, Jem and Scout. Scout is maybe a nine or ten-year-old girl, and it's through her eyes that we see this story. Also at the table is one of the hard-scrabble Cunningham clan. His name is Walter. Walter is from the wrong side of the tracks. Walter is there against the will, actually, of Scout, who would, in her own mind, have little to do with this piece of white trash, Walter. Also in the story is their head of the household, the, the, uh, the ever-wise and always-feared Calpurnia. So here we go. While Walter piled food on his plate, he and Atticus talked together like two men to the wonderment of Jem and me. Atticus was expounding upon farm problems when Walter interrupted to ask if there was any molasses in the house. Atticus summoned Calpurnia, who returned bearing the syrup pitcher. She stood waiting for Walter to help himself. Walter poured syrup on his vegetables and his meat with a generous hand. He would probably have poured it into his milk glass had I not asked what the Sam Hill he was doing. The silver saucer clattered when he replaced the pitcher and he quickly put his hands in his lap 
And then he ducked his head. Atticus shook his head at me again. But he's gone and drowned his syrup, his dinner in syrup, I protested. He's poured it all over. It was then that Calpurnia requested my presence in the kitchen. How many of you are familiar with this story? A few of you. Oh, a lot of you guys. Okay, you've been to junior high school. You've probably read this thing. It reminds me, by the way, just parenthetically, that a few years ago, I, I, I plowed my way through reading War and Peace. And I happened to mention it to my sister at a family reunion that I was proud of myself having read this book. And I expected to hear something like, wow, that's amazing. What I heard instead was, oh, that's one of my favorite books. I read it twice when I was in seventh grade. <laughs> Calpurnia was furious when she squinted down at me, the tiny lines around her eyes deepened. There's some folks who don't eat like us, she whispered fiercely. But you ain't called on to contradict them at the table when they don't. That boy's your company, and if he wants to eat up the tablecloth, you let him, you hear? He ain't company, Cal. He's a cunning hand. Hush your mouth. Don't matter who they are. Anybody sets foot in this house, your company, and don't you let me catch you remarking on their ways like you was so high and mighty. Your folks might be better than the Cunninghams, but it don't count for nothing the way you're disgracing them. If you can't act fit to eat the table, eat at the table, you can just sit there and eat in the kitchen. That's the end of the story. And you might be thinking, wow, that has little to do with, with uh, secondary matters, primary matters, stumbling blocks, body of Christ. Why, why would I take up valuable time to quote that? I did it for a reason. It's to show how easy it is to destroy a precious soul with an ill-considered word, but also to illustrate what it looks like to fiercely protect and defend the souls of all who dwell among us. People, there have been times when I ought to have been made to eat my dinner in the kitchen, or, yeah, in the kitchen instead of at the table, where there are things like manners and respect and um, kindness, where those things truly mean something. How often have I seen myself as the dispenser of wisdom and discernment and the brother or sister that I'm talking to as only the receiver of that light. How often have I viewed another believer who was bound up in disputable matters as, quote, a project or worse, a problem, one that I must correct and one from whom there could not even be any possibility that correction could come to me. It's treating people like, it, like communication is a strictly one-way street. Manifests itself in a lot of ways. And just an interesting side note here. When thinking of examples, I find it pretty easy to think of occasions where a culturally bound brother or sister may look down their nose at their more liberated fellow Christians. But I found it more difficult to come up with examples in my own mind <coughs> when it's the other way around. Two things. First, 
In the former case, the more culturally bound person does not have to go out of their way to confront or to express a challenge. All they got to do is simply wear or eat or restrict their behavior in a way that will make a statement. Similarly, and in an especially dangerous way, the stronger, freer brother may destroy a weaker brother not by a challenge or by a verbal assault on the state of their bondage or even by an attempt to persuade, but simply by the rolling of the eyes or the isolation of relationship or the sequestration of fellowship and friendship or maybe worst of all, by idle and careless gossip. How about us as a body? Do we long for righteousness and peace and joy in the body of Christ? Or are we willing to take a sledgehammer to our brother in Christ and thereby to the body of Christ itself for the sake of cultivating our hate life? It says in verse 19, pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. I want to uh, offer a few suggestions on how to do that. Let's call it takeaways. And then I'll offer a conclusion. The uh, first takeaway is this. And my hope is that this could be of some practical value to us. Know when to tear down and know when to build up. And if you can't figure it out, go for the building up. Right? We are more than a wrecking crew and it's not easy to tell all the time. But it's a good rule of thumb to lean into the building up of the body of Christ even if there are things worthy of tearing down. Because if all we're doing is tearing down, we may persuade ourselves that it's a cleansing or some other word that, that sounds a little more palatable, which may be a euphemism for a darker and more ominous intention. When uh, uh, I spent most of my career as a carpenter contractor, and uh, we built room additions to houses in every single one, and for over 40 years, every single one had significant teardown. You had to tear things down before you could build, and I hated it. Tearing, tear out, tear down. Some people, they, they talk about how they love that. They love taking a sledgehammer to a wall. I never enjoyed that because it's dirty, it's messy, it's dangerous, it's exhausting. You go home with insulation all in your clothes and your wife has to wash your clothes and, and she has to be nice to you anyway. <laughs> and it's, it's completely unsatisfying. But one thing I learned was that if you're going to do tear out, you've got to tear it down, scrap it out, take a broom, sweep it up, so that when you start building, you can start building fresh. Because here's a rule of construction. It is impossible to build well if you're standing in a pile of debris. Uh, we've all done it. I see Pete nodding his head there, right? We've, we've, we've all been there. And it's just easy, easy to miss. Know when to tear down and know when to build up. The second thing is, can we begin to see the saints around us as trophies of grace? And we will all say, oh yeah, of course, we're all trophies of grace. But can we see them appreciating that their stories are neither more nor less mundane or dramatic than our own? Or do we find ways to irresistibly 
put people into categories, into little boxes, weaker brother, stronger brother, problem, project, able, disabled. And from those boxes, by the way, there's no chance of parole or escape. You are indelibly placed in that box until you die. One of my favorite stories is Sneetches on Beaches by Dr. Seuss. Raise your hand if you know the story. I don't even know if that's the name of the story, but I think it is. In which the star-belly Sneetches, they know one thing, but they know it with an absolute, total certainty that cannot be budged or moved. You know what it is? If you don't have a star on your belly, you are not one of the star belly snitches. Christopher, what are you smiling about? <laughs> and you will never, ever be invited to our marshmallow roasts, right? Folks, may that never be. Third thing, with apologies to Johnny Cash, Keith, and this is for Bill, Keep your eyes wide open all the time. There's a member of our staff who looks for one thing when he walks up to a tailgate with an armchair or a lawn chair under his arm. You know what it is? It's the one thing that is a raspberry seed in his wisdom tooth. He cannot abide it. You know what it is? It's to see someone at a tailgate sitting by themselves and eating alone. His eyes are wide open all the time. In fact, by his own admission, there is only one thing in life that he hates worse. It's turkey bacon. And I will let you figure out who I'm talking about. I think turkey bacon is okay, actually. It's a good garden tomato and mayonnaise and lettuce and you chop an onion on there. It's it's not bad. Somebody said amen. It's the only amen I'm going to get today, I think. The fourth thing. Folks, can we together ratchet up our imaginations? Could we learn to lament our joylessness, our unsettled lack of peace, and our failure to grow in righteousness and grace, but just as importantly, to look for it, to honor it, and to name it when we see it. And I would venture this too, you're seldom going to see one of these qualities without the other one being present. You will seldom see, maybe never, see righteousness or joy without peace, right? Or peace without the other qualities. And just as these truths begin to grow in us as fruits of the Spirit, and the Lord will see to it that they do, right? They will also grow in the body more broadly and multiply perhaps geometrically because just as joylessness can infect the broader assembly, so it is that joy and peace and righteousness can multiply and change and shape the body of Christ, fulfilling the charge in John 13, which says, familiar to you all, I suspect, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if what? If you have love for one another. 
And one last one. Guard not only your conscience, but the consciences of your brothers and sisters. A conscience is a funny thing. I was thinking about this. A conscience is strong enough to cause people to choose to be burned at the stake rather than suffer the butchery to that conscience. But a conscience is also fragile enough to be broken by a well-meaning but insensitive word from a dearly loved brother or sister. The mind and heart coupled together in a healthy way is a beautiful and rare commodity. And it is the miraculous mark of the Holy Spirit at work in an individual life and in the body of Christ. Let me conclude this morning with this. Maybe this is a good way to sum up the whole section. We are in this thing together. As these scriptures have been rolling around in my mind over the past few weeks, I'm drawn toward the conclusion that when boiled down, the urgency of Paul's exhortation is not in the end about defining the strong or identifying the weak. It's not even about figuring out what issues are of secondary versus primary importance. The elephant in the room here is this, that we, each of us individually, are part of something way bigger than ourselves. The primacy of the body of Christ as the bride of Christ, empowered by and saturated with the Holy Spirit, humbled before a great and good heavenly Father who strangely and inexplicably cares for us, derives ultimately from the reality and the implications of the Trinity and the love and fellowship and loyalty found first there. In fact, it's from that source that all of our relationships are watered. And though we may doubt many things and walk with uncertain footsteps, we never have to doubt the care and the attentive love of God when we walk, even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And there are a number in this room who have been on that dark path, right? Finally, listen to this from Daniel 12. It's his prayer. Or, um, Daniel 12, verse 3 says, Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That would suggest to me that the phrase, you can't take it with you, is not exactly true for the Christian. The scary part of this for an elder is that the protection and the nourishing of our collective mind and heart fall to a high degree upon us. And we, the elders, will have to give an account for that. I mentioned earlier today to our children, the kids' music, that today is Reformation Sunday. And Wes commented on that as well. And I quoted from Martin Luther's best-loved hymn. And it seems fitting to me to look for and find in his words this Reformation Sunday a pretty good summary of the scriptures that we've been considering today. He said this, I thought it was funny, he said this, at the diet of worms, and for the young ones among us, this was not some sort of dietary punishment, all right? It was a place. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience 
is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me, God. Amen. Join me as I pray. And as I'm praying, be good for the men and the musicians to come on up. Heavenly Father, we, we know this, I think, if we don't know hardly anything else. That the Lord Jesus Christ came down to live and dwell among us that we may be saved. And when we stop to think about saved to what? We are saved to righteousness. And we are saved to peace and to joy only available through the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for your love. Father, we thank you that um, that in Christ we can aspire to things that are utterly unattainable in this world by any other means. Father, I pray that you would help us today to go out of here appreciating one another more. Not because we can identify them or put them in a box, but because we are indeed all in this together. Help us to keep our eyes wide open all the time for the good of one another. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.